Hi, this is your host, Becky Sanders. Welcome to A Virtual View, where we discuss healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, we're talking with Taryn Stone from Ice Miller. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to your current position at Ice Miller? Sure. Thanks, Becky, and thank you for having me. I'm the chair of and a partner in Ice Miller's Healthcare Group. I've always had an interest in healthcare and in public health and healthcare administration specifically. I made my way to Indiana to go to law school here due to IU's health law concentration. And so after, during law school and then after law school, I joined Ice Miller in their healthcare group. Um, not a native Hoosier. I did leave Indiana for a few years and worked in North Carolina. I worked, I worked at another large law firm there. But while I was in Charlotte, I received my uh, master's in healthcare administration from UNC's um, Global School of Public Health because I felt like it was important to better serve my, my healthcare clients. And I really enjoyed that work. And then I rejoined Ice Miller here in Indianapolis about 10 years ago. And I've continued to work with our healthcare clients in the Midwest and across the country ever since. Wow. So you're not a native Hoosier. Where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And my dad uh-huh. is a retired steelworker. So I am very much <laughs> a blue collar Pittsburgher. Yinzer is in the name that is often given, but yeah, very traditional mm-hmm. Pittsburgh family. Very cool. When my husband and I were first married, we lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So not too far from Charlotte. We we loved it there except for the allergies. When you can write your name on your car in the in all of the pollen on your car, that's not a good thing. (laughs) That is is not a place you want to be. But I do love Winston-Salem. I almost went to Wake Forest. I ended up at Wash U in St. Louis, but Wake Forest Mm -hmm. was another school that I that I had looked at. So in your work at Ice Miller, what type of clients do you normally deal with? So we have a pretty broad range of clients that are kind of across the spectrum of healthcare. I do work with individual physicians up to large multi-specialty physician groups, small community hospitals or critical access hospitals, the whole way up to multi-hospital health systems. And then every other type of provider you can think of uh, post-acute, long-term care, senior living, home health, hospice. And also some med device and pharma uh, clinical trial work. And then also a lot of technology companies actually that are looking to get into the telehealth space. All right. Now I know where to send those people when they come (laughs) looking at me and say, I want to hang up my sign as a telehealth provider. Yes, we can definitely help with that. Well, can you provide us with some historical framework for Medicare reimbursement as we came into the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. So Prior to the pandemic, less than 1%, it's somewhere between 03 and 0.4% of Part B reimbursement was um, spent on telehealth services. And actually only about 0.1% was on primary care visits that were, were conducted via telehealth. So a very, very, very small number from a Medicare expenditure perspective. It also was extremely restrictive in terms of location. So uh, geographically only could be done in rural areas. They had to be established patients. They couldn't be new patients. Um, and also the types of providers were relatively limited, mainly um, physicians, physician assistants, some social work, but very, very limited in the types of services and the types of providers that could provide telehealth services. Yeah, actually, we just got a question today through our website, and they were asking if a rural health clinic or RHC or FQHC, federally qualified health center provider, could provide services from their home. And I'm like, well, what insurance are they billing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and so. 
as you mentioned, FQHCs and rural health clinics were not providers that it, prior to the pandemic that could even do telehealth. They can now, and there's actually a piece of proposed legislation that would allow them to do it permanently going forward. But it's another good example of, of types of providers that previous to the pandemic couldn't do it. The other thing, I think I mentioned geographic location, but there's also the location in that the, the patient had to be in an actual distant site, meaning they had to be in an actual healthcare facility or a clinic in order to be seen via telehealth by a provider that was in another healthcare site. Mm-hmm. So not in their homes like we're seeing today. So that there were, again, very significant limitations on Medicare reimbursed services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is your take now on the high usage of urban Medicare beneficiary telehealth claims that we've seen during COVID? So I think I think it highlights a number of things, the fact that it's urban. I think from a rural perspective, it's still extremely underused, even during the pandemic. And I think that highlights the fact that we still have a long way to go from a broadband access perspective. I think it also highlights the fact that a lot of rural providers either didn't have the capabilities or couldn't undertake to get the capabilities to provide telehealth quickly. And even those that did, I think there were a lot of rural beneficiaries that didn't maybe know that their providers were providing care via telehealth and so didn't seek it out. And I I think that that was somewhere upwards of 30 some percent of rural health Medicare beneficiaries haven't sought uh, telehealth services either because their providers don't provide it or they didn't think that their provider provided it. And I think we can talk more about this later, but they're obviously underserved from a broadband perspective too. So even if they had a provider that was offering services, a lot of rural beneficiaries didn't have the broadband access that would have enabled them to to get that care. From an urban perspective, I think it's been interesting to see who actually took advantage of wanting to get care. I think one of the things that's been surprising and maybe not when you think about it, but that a lot of people, millennials and others are receiving care. And it's not surprising, right? They know how to access care. They know how to use technology. They have technology readily available. And I know this isn't Medicare, but they often aren't Medicare, but it kind of goes along with how they generally consume goods. They shop online, they do grocery shopping online, they do meal delivery. And so I think that outside of millennials and younger individuals, other Medicare beneficiaries were realizing just how convenient it was, right? It also, outside of the convenience, it was safer. They weren't having to go into a healthcare facility in order to go for things like an ear infection or, or something that was an acute need, but maybe something that wouldn't require them to actually go in. Or maybe even it was just a kind of a routine check-in with their physician, a physical, something like that. They also didn't have to commute or take time away to get to the doctor. They didn't have to wait a long period of time. So I think that what we're seeing is that a lot of people that took advantage of it have expectations that it will continue on some level going forward. Yeah. So in your day-to-day job, what are the most frequent questions you've had regarding telehealth reimbursement? I think the big one up until now, which is still ongoing, is it has to do more with the licensure of the providers that are providing the care and then also types of providers. So there were waivers in place in the large majority, if not all of the states. In some level, there was waivers in the majority of states about the types of providers that could provide telehealth services. But a lot of those have expired. Over half have expired. I think that there are currently, I think, 24 states. So I think 26 states in D.C. have ended their their public health emergency. And so a lot of the waivers that went along with that have gone away. And so there's still 24 states that are kind of operating with those in place, but even a couple of those states, the license flexibilities have lapsed. And so we get a lot of questions about providers that are 
in a state where maybe a patient is in another state and they're not licensed there? And can they provide telehealth services as, as patients are kind of moving about? So we get, we get a lot of questions about that. And, and frankly, this changes daily, especially with the Delta variant. There's, I think, some states that are reinstituting some of these, these waivers to allow for enhanced flexibility, as well as staffing concerns and staffing issues that have come up, trying to enable there to be more physicians and more providers available. Um, So we get a ton of questions about licensure and making sure that they can actually provide the care. Early on, we got a lot of questions about HIPAA and there was some flexibilities that were issued, but some of this, you know, this was happening real time, (laughs) real time for a lot of healthcare Mm -hmm. providers. And they were realizing they had no real ramp up to acquire the technology. And so they were kind of patching it together and they needed to acquire, you know, iPads and computers and whatever webcams, as well as people that were doing e-learning. So there was a kind of a rush on technology. And so there was uh, pretty quickly OCR came through and issued some flexibilities related to HIPAA and allowed for some platforms that are not technically HIPAA compliant to be used to provide telehealth, to allow people to stay out of health Mm -hmm. facilities or physician clinics and things like that. Um, Another question that we get and have gotten a lot where there's, there's been a lot of um, grant funding and funds available. So some provider relief funds that were available. We saw some kind of what I'll call new players in the market. So FCC had some COVID related telehealth grants and we actually helped a client that secured one of those in, in round one of their program. There's also some other pilot programs that from the FCC that that kind of provide funding for the the technology, the software, the licenses, things like mm-hmm. that. It's a federal communications commission, not someone that you would think of in healthcare outside of maybe kind of the radio frequencies for emergency dispatch and things like that. But given the broadband and communications is is more of an FCC governed issue, they were quick to get in and had some grant money through some of the COVID legislation that allowed for funds to be given out related to COVID and kind of acquiring the materials that needed to be done, needed to be acquired to to provide the telehealth. And actually, I think last week or two weeks ago, they just, they just announced their round two grant recipients. So they were, they got some additional funding and announced their grantees for round two. And if you look at them, it's a very wide cross section. You have urban hospitals and health systems, you have extremely rural health systems. You have some coalitions and consortiums that came together from American Samoa, Alaska, mm-hmm. the Midwest, the East Coast, the Northeast. I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting to see who got it and what they're going to use it for. Mm-hmm. Talking about the Federal Communications Commission, when I first became an employee of the Indiana Rural Health Association, that was one of my first projects to work on was the very first pilot program at the FCC for developing broadband access to rural healthcare entities so that as the High Tech Act came out and all of those other things to make sure that those healthcare entities had adequate access to broadband so that they could build upon that and the broadband became that foundation for their telehealth services. Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess it makes sense that they're getting back they're getting back involved. It just it seemed at the time and we had a lot of clients that were like the FCC's offering, you know, had found out or we had told them about this programming and it was welcome relief for a lot of these clients that were expending a lot of additional funds to try mm-hmm. to, you know, staff up and and get the material so they could provide this care. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned the digital digital divide and how difficult it was back in March and April of last year to actually find webcams and computers and all of that because all the kids were doing e-learning from home and you know not everybody is lucky enough to have a single device for each person in the home. The pandemic has shown us that that digital divide is much greater than we ever imagined it was. Oh, absolutely. Or the expendable funds to go out and acquire, you know, a mm-hmm. number of iPads for the number of children in the home or anything mm-hmm. like that. So the pandemic has highlighted it. And one thing in Biden's Americans Jobs Plan and a lot of the pending legislation that's out there, broadband is included in the infrastructure package because they recognize all the reasons, including e-learning, including healthcare, that there is still this divide for rural Americans. And so they're trying to to help patch that because telehealth is great, but it doesn't help if you don't have the technology to actually access it. So I think that's that's the point is if we can get broadband, then even those Medicare beneficiaries that didn't even know that it existed or didn't know how to go about getting it, they don't have to just see their provider, right? They can see a provider somewhere else in their state or in another state, potentially, depending on the flexibilities that that are out there. But you need the broadband to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the other things that I was just looking at the other day, I was on a webinar and they were talking about the 2022 proposed physician fee schedule that CMS has put out for Medicare. And talking about part of that, one of the other groups of providers under all of the waivers that happened during COVID is therapists. So physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech language pathologists. So I got curious and was it September 13th, I think is the deadline for comments on the physician fee schedule for next year. So I got curious and I started going through some of the comments. Somebody at a therapy association somewhere is really pushing. There are lots and lots of comments on keeping therapists oh, yeah. as part of Medicare beneficiaries as providers. Yeah. And, and more broadly, Medicaid as well. I mean, you have a lot of high risk youth that utilize those services as well. And so it allowed for them to continue to receive them in their homes mm-hmm. via video with a, usually a parent or something like that, but very important services, but one that was not allowed and definitely not covered kind of pre-pandemic circumstances. So I would expect mm-hmm. to see more of those as we get closer to the 13th, I would expect that we'll see additional comments from those types of trade associations come in. Yeah, there was a program pre-pandemic in Ohio, and I can't remember exactly how it was written, but it was interesting because they allowed for behavioral health services or group therapy services, they allowed the patients to be at home. And they really were targeting individuals that were leaders in their communities, maybe like lawyers or physicians that needed counseling for behavioral health issues, but because of their public profile in the community, were very reticent to seek services because of the stigma for behavioral health. So I think that's one of the areas that there's so much opportunity for growth as we break down those barriers of behavioral health stigma. And I was talking on, we had some training on reducing the stigma for suicide and helping individuals that have ideologies or are thinking about be, uh, harming themselves. It's hard to talk about those things because there is still such a stigma for that. And if we are successful in 
making sure that those barriers do not exist in the future, then I think we'll be much better off as a society for that. Yeah. And I think if you look at some of the pending legislation and just some of the things out there, mental health and behavioral health is a focus, right? And I think for those reasons, because also a lot of times when those crises happen or when some of that's happening, it's not between eight and five or eight and four or whatever time the, the clinics are open. So I think there's also a recognition that this is a, it's a necessary service. We can reduce a lot of bad events by making sure professionals are available kind of when they're needed. There's always a risk of, of having, you know, fraudulent providers and things like that. But I think if we build good platforms and it's well-policed, which as a lawyer, I know it will be right in healthcare, I really think that there's a lot of opportunity. I do think with, especially with the pandemic and all the the issues related to mental health that it itself has exposed and, and kind of brought to the forefront, I think it's a good time. There's a lot of momentum for that to happen. Mm-hmm. I agree. Now, when we were talking about some of the most frequent questions you get, I wanted to go back to that just a minute and talk a little bit about workforce in the state of Indiana as it pertains to licensing of clinical providers. Indiana has traditionally not been a good state for licensure compacts. Do you have any comments on that? I think there's a number of of issues. And I think you want to create flexibility. And I think in certain states, there's nurse compacts and things like that that have worked well, especially when you have the shortage like we're seeing today of nurses and medical assistants and other healthcare professionals. It allows for flexibility and traveling nurses and things like that to move back and forth between states. So there's there's definitely a lot of good. I don't know that Indiana itself right now, where they are from a policy perspective, but I think that some of the reluctance that I'm hearing from state medical boards generally are they're arguing that licenses and discipline are beneficial to patient safety, right? And we also have to kind of remember that it's probably not a huge revenue source, but it's also a state revenue source, right? There's some filing fees and stuff like that associated with it. And so it allows for policing of kind of those things and monitoring and things like that. So I think some of the concern is how will we police between states? And all states have different requirements and they have different fees. So if there's no centralized agency or centralized office, this is going to create challenges for rule enforcement and follow-up and making sure you don't have a doctor that's suspended in a state or has had disciplinary actions in a state kind of going to another state. And the other thing is like the American Medical Association, they've kind of pushed back on some of this as well because they're worried that restrictions could lead to added competition in a state, Mm -hmm. especially in rural states. Although there's also the kind of balancing it against there's underserved. (laughs) So you're, you're trying to balance all of that. And there's good examples, although federal, right? But you have the VA, as long as you're licensed in a state, you can provide care to VA. So that's a good example of when it works, but it's an isolated example. It's a, a federal facility. I don't know where Indiana stands. I think that there's going to be a push more generally for some type of licensure compact. And I do think certain states will push to participate. And there's certainly others. There are some concerns that are being raised with that as well, which I also understand. It's a more global issue of someone has to kind of take the charge and Mm -hmm. do the culling of all the information and kind Mm -hmm. of be in charge of that kind of interstate investigation of incidents or or whatever the case may be just to protect patients in the long term. But I agree that it allows for flexibility and will likely bring care to those that that have trouble accessing it. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to pick your brain about is every once in a while, we get questions about liability insurance for telehealth services on top of the normal malpractice and liability insurance. 
So I think just like everything, you have to leave it up. The physician or whoever the clinician is that's seeing the patient, they're going to have to determine, is this something that I should really be seeing via telehealth, right? And maybe they have an initial meeting via telehealth, but I think it's appropriate both from a patient protection perspective, as well as a malpractice perspective and just, you know, providing the best care to a patient that they should be evaluating. There, there may still be instances where it's most appropriate for that person to be seen in person. And I think that it's up to the clinician to make that call. And as long as they're kind of documenting accordingly, they should, but they should always only be providing telehealth services for those things they feel comfortable doing and where they feel like a patient needs to come in. I think they have to, because that, that existed during the pandemic too, right? We're trying to keep people out, but there were instances in which you needed the patient to come. And, and I think that will continue. I don't think telehealth is ever, I guess said another way, I don't think telehealth is ever going to cause there to not be in-person visits. There's always going to be a need for in-person visits. And I think it's up to the clinicians to help balance what can be done kind of remotely via telehealth and what should be done in person. But I don't think we'll ever get to a situation where medicine doesn't still include some in-person hands-on visits. So do you have any other thoughts about the future of Medicare reimbursement for telehealth or any, you think it's here to stay? I, I do. I think that you mentioned the physician fee schedule. I think one of the mm-hmm. things that it's signaling, it, it, it kind of broke it down into categories, right? Like things that are here to stay forever, things that are here to stay until 2023, and then things that are, in, I think they even said, here's some, the category we're kind of continuing to evaluate. And I think that there's probably going to be some continued evaluation. I think MedPAC came out with a report not too long after that that said, you know, we think telehealth should stay and there should be some longevity to it. And maybe it's 2025, maybe it's not 2023, maybe it's 2025 to also, because I don't think we're just, the pandemic's just going to stop, right? Like as we've seen, we all kind of hope that was going to be the case and then and then it hasn't. But I, what, what I do think it's signaling is CMS is saying, hey, we can only go so far. Like we, we'll agree to put things into our categories and agree to pay them. But statutorily, you guys, you Congress has to pass something more long-term. We're looking to you to make this more permanent and we'll continue to be patchwork about it, but there has to be some, some longer-term solution. And so I think, you know, with my crystal ball, but I think that they're signaling, we all want this to stay. There's a lot of studies to prove that this is, this is working, right? We're able to do this but they're leaving it up to Congress to kind of provide for legislation to make it stick around. And I think um, there's also some pending legislation because the next thing is, you know, also they have to, it has to be paid for at a rate that's going to cover the cost of providing it. So there's kind of coverage, like, is it covered? Can it be provided? And then, you know, payment parity too, right? It's one Mm -hmm. thing to cover it, but it's paid at the same rate as in-person care. And I do think that there's some pending legislation that would, I think, it looks to cover kind of marketplace Obamacare plans that would say, hey, you have to cover it. I don't know that it goes so far as to require it to be paid at the same level, but that's probably probably in there as well or will be proposed. And I know certain states have done that. There's a number of states that regulate kind of the insurance products within their individual states that have said, hey, if you have a health plan, offer a health plan in our state, you have to cover it at this same same as an in-person and maybe at the same rate, parity of payment as well. So I think it's going to be up to the states and Congress to pass something like that as well. It's one thing to allow it, but if if it's not reimbursed at the right level, it won't last long or it would only be kind of a smaller piece of the overall puzzle. But I, I think also it, it matches with value-based care. It doesn't have to also be this full 
visit. I think what we saw with some of these Medicaid or Medicare changes is that you could have these quick e-visits, right? Or these kind of check-ins. And I think that having this capability helps kind of make sure the patient has all the, that you're kind of wrapping yourself around the patient and will allow for care to be better provided. And I think one of the things we've also talked about is that telehealth has also raised an awareness of other things that might be going on in a patient's life or their home situation or things like that. So it can also be used as a tool to understand, you know, other social determinants, whether that's what it's meant to be for or not. You can kind of see some of that through telehealth or not being able to access telehealth services because they lack some of the technology to, to, to access the care. I think we have a lot to see. I think you've referenced it on some of your other podcasts, but there's a lot of great resources in the Connected Care Alliance. I think I'm probably getting the name wrong, but we follow that because they do a great job tracking legislation it's on a federal level on all the things that are out there. And a lot of them I'll mention too are bipartisan. So mm-hmm. especially in today's world, there's not a lot of bipartisan support for much of anything, it seems. (laughs) And telehealth is one of the things that transcends, it it seemingly Mm -hmm. transcends political parties. So I actually do think we will see some longer term legislation in the, in the nearer future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, if not now, then when, you know, everyone has come around, you know, and well, and some people will say that the field of telehealth advanced 20 years overnight when everything shut down at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, while we're still dealing with hopefully the it storing of the, the, the beginning of the end of the Delta variant, you know, now's definitely the time to come together for Congress to act. Well, and I think I alluded to this earlier with millennials, but I think, again, it applies for everyone. I think that now that we've had it, with all these new technological upgrades, right? Now that we've had it and you don't have to miss work, you're at work and you can have a virtual visit on your phone with a physician, or you can have tests ordered and just go and it's kind of on your your convenience. It's going to be hard to take that away, right? Because mm-hmm. you have a more productive workforce. People aren't having to you know, arrange for childcare, whatever the case may be. And so, and, and I agree. And I'd say even more than 20 years um, that it advanced forward because if, it, if you're looking at 0.1% of... Medicare expenditures. And I know we were in a pandemic, so it's going to you know, go way the other way, but it's a lot and it's going to be expected going forward. And I think all this, you have a lot of technology, I think, and probably technology companies that are looking to figure out how they can have their application work in the healthcare field. And, and so I think, I think the next couple of years, this is not that a pandemic has ever it's not been great for healthcare for a number of reasons, but in this way, it's kind of pushed a lot of people forward and out of their comfort zone. And we've realized that while there's always risk of abuse to anything, the, the good here far outweighs the bad. Mm-hmm. Taryn, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I'd like to thank you and our listeners for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders, and you can find out more information on today's episode in the show notes below. And if you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss in future podcasts, contact us at info at UMTRC or through the form found in the show notes below. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Josh Rodriguez and Francis Fitzgerald for scoring our podcast and to our executive producer, Caroline Yoder, and our audio video editor, Tristan Yoder. The content and conclusion of this podcast are those of Becky Sanders as the program director of the UMTRC 
and should not be construed as the official policy of, nor position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.